But I don't think, honestly, anybody is bad, is inherently bad. And that was confirmed when I went into a maximum security prison that day, and I felt safe and loved and surrounded by beautiful people, not prisoners, people. Thank you very much for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast series. And as always, I genuinely appreciate your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. This show is all about really better understanding what drives and inspires my guests to be their best in order to be of service to others. And given the current public health crisis that's impacting the world right now, lots of people are stepping it up to be a beacon of light and hope for others. And this is exactly what the world needs right now and into the future as well, as we all recover from the collective fear and anxiety caused by the COVID-19 crisis. When I think about my podcast, I think that my biggest hope is that my listeners, whoever they are or wherever they may be, walk away from each episode feeling more inspired to be a little better each day at what they do. Famous psychologist Dr. Albert Bandura has an extensive body of work related to the concepts of self-efficacy and self-actualization. And throughout his career, he firmly believed that people who are on the path to self-actualization are the ones who find meaning and a greater purpose in life that is beyond themselves. And although one might never truly attain self-actualization, the beauty lies in the process of getting there. And my guest today, Fritzi Horstman, is a perfect example of someone who has changed the course of her own life to find more meaning and purpose. Fritzi is a television producer and writer, as well as a director, who has worked on several different projects over the years. She won a Grammy Award in 2017 for Best Music Film, where she was able to work alongside Dr. Dre. And she has also worked with Jewel, Jennifer Lopez, Christian Slater, Richard Dreyfus, Ashton Kutcher, Alyssa Milano, and many more over the years. However, it's not her Grammy or her work in the movie business that really defines Fritzy now. It was her first visit to a maximum security prison in California. This was really a crystallizing experience that forever changed the path that Fritzy is on and which ultimately led to her founding the Compassion Prison Project where she's currently the executive director. At the very core of her being Fritzy's Compassion Prison Project is about bringing humanity and compassion to incarcerated men and women. 
She is currently filming a documentary about the work that she and her team are doing in maximum security prisons in the United States and their commitment to help inmates truly better understand that their nature is not violent and hateful, but more so magnificent and magical. Fritzi's work is powerful, and her effort to bring change to the world has already positively impacted so many people's lives. It is her hope that every person listening to this, at minimum, understands the devastating impact of childhood trauma. And she also wants every, everybody listening to this to know about the ACE test that we can all take. This is a test that can help you understand the risk for health issues that is rooted in childhood trauma. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Test is accessible for free at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. You can also check out Fritzi's work at CompassionPrisonProject.org. And with that, my episode with the inspiring Fritzi Horstman. Okay, Fritzi, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I want to thank you for being on the show. And before hitting record, I told you that I had so many questions written down. And what I really want to start with is this idea of your story and your journey to bring compassion and humanity to the world is so beautiful. And it's exactly what the world needs right now. So really, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy, but I want to thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm really honored to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Angle. We, I heard a little bit about your story before we hit record. I did a lot of research, uh, but really, just to set the context, and people will have heard about you already in the audio intro to the podcast, but... Can you just, uh, to set the context, to set the frame, can you just tell us a bit about yourself, where you were born, and anything else you want to tell us about early days? Um, sure. I was born in uh, Chicago, Illinois. Um, my father met my mother in Chicago. She was a nurse, and he was um, a young, budding advertising guy, and um from the photos, it looks like there was a bit of paradise, but I also saw some, some photos of my father drinking and reading some of his journal entries. There was a lot of kind of um, gloating about how, how alcohol was a great thing. And um, so I saw the, the, um, the seeds of alcoholism in his early days. Um, when I was, I have, a, I, my sister was born two years after me. Um, and then we moved to New York city when I was about five years old and my sister, um, cried a lot as a baby. So, um, and she's had a lot of kind of, she's had a troubled life. She's extremely, extremely intelligent. Um, but she got most of the attention because she cried a lot. So, um, therein lies a lot of my striving and over, overcompensating, trying to get trying to be seen, which, you know, I believe one of the things as humans we crave is to be seen, to be mm -hmm. seen for our magnificence and for what just 
just to be seen for being alive is enough and is what I'm coming to understand. That's, we are enough just for that. And all these expectations that we need to achieve and produce and um, bring forth, you know, is really creating an insane society. I mean, it's good to create and bring forth. I'm not saying that, but that our worth is, is derived from what we produce as a, as opposed to just who we are. And, um, you know, I'm 57 years old. That took me basically 56 and a half years hmm. to learn that. It's, and it's a journey and a process. And that idea that you're talking about is truly about the pressure to do, do, do instead of internalize to be, be, be and be the best version of ourselves. And, and it's that, that journey of learning. And when I think about the work that you've done, and obviously you're, you're very creative as a TV producer, a writer, and a director, which ultimately you got into in later years. But when I think of that, I see seeds of creativity from a young age. So when you think about the way that you grew up and wanting to be seen, but how did you develop creativity and what other strengths and skills did you develop in your, within yourself in those early years and how did you develop those skills? Okay, so when I was five years old, my mother put my sister and I in, or six, five or six, we were in a thing called the Merry Mini Players. So I was acting when I was five or six. And by eight years old, I was, I had lead roles. And then at nine years old, that my big lead role was given to someone else. And so I quit. I mean, I got, you know, I mean, my little ego was so strong at nine years old. Um, And then I, I pursued acting a little bit when I was a little girl. Again, I believe to be seen. And then I wasn't getting the parts. I, I went to Stage Door Manor and, you know, I really kind of really was trying to be seen. And then at 16, I was watching some Hitchcock films and I thought, oh, that's what I should do. I should direct. So I pivoted from acting to directing and then just did some films in college but I was also just so you know when I was a little when I was a teenager I had a I sold pins off an umbrella and I had a chocolate chip cookie business um so I was very entrepreneurial um Mm. very very kind of self-guided directed and saw opportunities to create a to create Mm. a buck yeah so um but also the entrepreneurial spirit is, was the spirit, and my mother, she definitely encouraged this, was that I could do anything. There was a feeling that I could do anything. Um, and once when I was 10, um, I think I found a bicycle in the street. My, I wish my mother was here to remind me, but I had wanted a bike, and the bike kind of showed up. And my, I said, Mom we can create anything we want. And this was like first understanding I had of bringing forth into the world. Like abundance, Um, a feeling of abundance. But but the magical, how magical being alive really is. Mm. I mean, I forgot that lesson until about a year ago, but that lesson, those seeds were planted in me when I was a little girl. And my mother, um, as much as she was tormented, she was also kind of extremely vibrant in her 
belief in the human spirit. So, you know, through her adversity, she also was extreme. She was a real cheerleader for, for my sister and myself and also kind of really warped and, you know, demented, you know, deranged a little bit. So it was an interesting, an interesting mother. And my father is an alcoholic and, you know, they say with alcoholics, their first love is towards their addiction, you know? So you would, I could never be as much as my father loved me. I could never be his first love, you know, or my mother couldn't be his first love. There was no, there was no real available love, you know, being really seen by my father, even though he tried. Um, so, and right now I'm reading a book called for your own good by Alice Miller. It's about child abuse and it's about, um, you know, how the Bible in, encourages child abuse and how through, through the centuries, the systems of abuse were, they wrote, you know, especially in Germany, my father's half German. I mean, um, the notion of discipline and abuse, if the child acts out, I really believe my father was, um, was a victim of, um, and this rigid, um, rule following system that the Germans had, which uh, enabled Hitler to, you know, prevail. Um, so I'm reading about this and I'm reading about the, you know, really how deeply embedded spare the rod, spoil the child is in our society. I'm just really kind of coming to really understand this and that this, you know, this was in my father's life, in my mother's life. And then my father never abused me, but my mother, but he accepted my mother's abuse. You know, he was, you know, he was part of it. You know, he yeah. didn't, he didn't stop it. In hearing the, I don't want to jump forward too quickly into the Compassion Prison Project, but uh, everything that I hear you say, and before we hit record, we talked about Dr. Gabor Mate and his work and everything that he says, and he's world-renowned, and he has flipped the paradigm on its head when it comes to really genuinely, authentically understanding mental illness and, and trauma, right, and addiction and that everything in life is not so much rooted in genes, but more so environment and childhood trauma. And so when we return back to the trauma that you went through, and you talked about a little bit about that in the Compassion Prisons Project, can you talk about, you know, what you've learned about yourself, maybe in the last couple of years, about how you dealt with the, the trauma, probably in a negative way growing up, but how that flipped and you learned to empower the journey you're on. Yeah. Okay. Well, starting with, you know, when I was a teenager, which is, I would say the crux of the trauma, the, the trauma really came to a head. My mother um, was really violent towards my father. And so I was always um, trying to stop their fights. Um, and at around 16, I really started acting out and I really, I wanted to join a gang, although I was a, you know, I was a white female living in New York city. So I didn't, there were no gangs for me, but you know, the, the need to belong was there. The, the need for belonging and acceptance by a group, by any, by anybody. So, you know, had that need been fed again, I would have just 
drifted off into um, into probably violence and crime. I think what saved me is I got a D or an F on a, a Huck Finn paper, and I saw I, I saw what what my behavior. I, I don't know why I had some divine intervention or something. I saw what my behavior was causing. Like it was not bringing forth the results that I wanted, even though my mother was going, you know, they were cheating on each other. They were, you know, my mother was destroying his, his apartment. Um, cops were called all those things crying till four, till five and six in the morning from their fighting. Um, I kind of learned, I, I, I taught myself that if I go down this road, the road is going to, it's going to end for me. So I pulled, I, I had that awareness. No one else did. A lot of people say they've had other people help them, but that, I think that was just something inside of me that knew this wasn't my path. Can I, um, can I ask but, you something, Fritzy? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to ask you at that time. So can you tell me an age that was about 16, you said? 16, yeah. yeah. And you recognize that within yourself what do you think divine intervention you use you use that phrase but what do you think that it was that allowed you did you have any outside mentors that might have been working with you it was just an understanding that you came across about yourself yeah i didn't really have i mean i also i remember writing a poem in seventh grade like why this is why men and women hate each other which I mean, that was, that was one of the poems. And I guess a teacher, I guess some teachers tried to help me, but I don't really recall anyone um, really reaching out. You know, I did go to a decent school, so I did have some support there and probably in ways I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. But I remember being on, in my bedroom on the floor looking at that D or F, I'm not sure. I think it was an F. It was an F. I, I had copied the crypt notes from, for Huck Finn. Uh, it was like, it was, it was kind of like, you know, how the higher mind, it was like the higher self was present. The higher self said, Hey, this isn't you. Um, and well that, and that, that's similar to what happened when I read the book, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. That was one of my good friends. I had told them that I was abused just we were at coffee we have coffee every once in a while he's a psychologist and he said read this book and you know reading it was just the biggest eye-opener because I realized that my behavior my outbursts my violent outbursts my um inexplicable violent outbursts which is kind of always alarmed me with my, with my child and also with my friends they were, you know my friends have told me you know people are afraid of you Fritzy sometimes um because I am very direct I'm, and I don't really sugarcoat anything. So that can be a good thing, but that can also be kind of scary when, you know, you're used to, you know, a little more gentler approach. Um, but I also think because I'm so direct, it works in prison really well because they see that I don't bull, bull, bull crap around. You, you can swear it's okay. No problem. <laughs> and so, um, you know, as as in everything, our strengths are also our greatest weaknesses, and our weaknesses are our greatest strengths. So, um, what my personality, the personality that I've come through as, is someone that 
you know, the incarcerated population can relate to because of my trauma, but also because I'm not judging myself for what I've done or judging them for what they've done, which is an important piece. Which is that, that compassion, self-compassion, both two, twofold, right? Compassion and self-compassion. Because the world preach, preaches about compassion all the time, that we have to be compassionate towards others. But if we cannot develop the skill of being self-compassionate towards ourselves in a non-judgmental way, we will never truly and authentically be in a position to be compassionate for others. And when I guess that's what you're describing is that skill of being self-compassionate. So can you talk about how you developed that skill of being self-compassionate in a non-judging way? Um, you know, that, that skill is still in process. I'm still working on it because, um, it's that Gandhi quote, you know, uh, be, be what you want to see in the world. So if you want to see a, a, a world that isn't violent, um, he's saying, notice the violence in you. Where are you being violent? Because you can't ask for the world to not be violent when you're violent yourself. And I noticed this in, you know, these fierce advocates that are advocating for change and their approach is violent. And so what happens is, um, you know, you know, we have to keep the fight up. What they're doing is they're creating the other that they want to dissolve. So, you know, it's such an ironic thing that we're doing in our, in this world. We're, we're taught to fight, to be against, to to the war on drugs you know, the war on the pandemic right now where it's yeah. another war. And this is not, this is not the route from, from where we must come from. So when I look at the violence, I see the violence towards myself. You know, when I talk about, when I say, Fritzy, you shouldn't have done that, but it, it's not done in a kind way. It's like, Fritzy, what are you doing? There's, there's some scolding and shame in it. I look at that, I start listening to the way I'm talking to myself and it's, oh, okay, I'm not being kind to myself here. Where, okay, what is, what did I do in this moment to get the wrath of myself? So, you know, all of this is, this is our deep homework is, is how, first of all, our self-talk, we have to listen to what, what we're saying to ourselves, you know, you know, the abuse that we do that we're not in, the, the big abuse of, especially in the American society, that we are not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, we're too old, we're too fat, we're too thin, we're too um, tall, we're too short. We can't help how we came out. And we can't help that we're getting old. And we can't help any of the things that are just inherent to being alive. And so, you know, I'm starting to question my need to, to buy um, wrinkle cream, which I, I, I admit it. And yet I love my wrinkles. I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm in relationship with them and I am going to get older. And I mean, I know people are going to see me and say, Oh, look at her. She's old. And that's okay. Because that's their fear about their own getting old. And so I have to allow them to judge me so they can see their judgment and then, you know, integrate it and 
and take the shame. The, the shame piece is really crucial to, to this algorithm I've kind of come up with because if you stay in shame, you are never going to open up your, your open up and realize your own divinity. So, yeah. um, yeah. And, and, and do you know Brene Brown? Brene Brown's work about yeah. shame. Yeah. Shame resiliency. She's incredible. Right. And I've been oh. listening to um, Dare to Lead uh, on my runs the last few days. I've, list, I've li- listened to a number of her audio books and read a number of her books over the years. And this is exactly what she talks about is this, this shame. And, and the first step is to be vulnerable and vulnerable. You know, being vulnerable is not a sign of weakness. It's great strength. Because you really are projecting your inner self to the world as it is, you know. And what you describe, I think, is that idea of being aware of your own inner voice and how you treat yourself requires being and in, dropping into the present moment and, and self-awareness. And it's, it's amazing that if you can just take that pause to recognize it, that's the first step to recovery, right? And I think that's what I want to speak a little more about in your journey is you say it was, it's just been in the last couple of years that you've really come to an understanding of this, right? But can, can, can you speak more to that before we go into the Compassion Prison Project? Yeah, okay. So when I read that book, The Body Keeps the Score, which... Really, I mean, when you come to understand, which, you know, this is my mission is to get this exact piece to the entire planet. Is This piece is that when you are traumatized, your body does things that you as a human would not want to do. When your body is traumatized and is triggered, like every war vet, every cop, when they're triggered and they fire before they think, or when the war vet comes home and kills his wife because he thinks she's a, this is what trauma does. Mm -hmm. This is the here. So when I'm yelling at my son or when I pinched him, because he was, he made me so angry. Um, Or, you know, all of, all of the, you know, when I yelled at him in the car for, for playing with my phone, I mean, I mean, who is this person? You know, that is not who I am. I'm a loving mother. And and yet this trauma takes over. And we are not who we think we are. Uh, I mean, we are not those. We are not the traumatic, the traumatized man or woman. Mm-hmm. But that is what our behavior has done. That is what the trauma has done to our bodies. And it takes over. It is definitely, I would say, temporary insanity. And if you have head trauma, which 90% of the men I've, I've asked, they all have head trauma. There's brain damage going on. I mean, we are, we are punishing people that are acting. I mean, some people act out of, you know, out of malice and deliberate malice. And that's a different thing, but they're also indoctrinated by their gang. So I don't, I don't really, I can't get, I can't get, too granular about how people act when they're traumatized. But when you're in a moment of crisis and you shoot before you think, um, that's trauma. That's not, that's not the evil person living inside. So, and our society has condemned everyone. 
Um, and same with drug addicts. You know, they're triggered. They go in. Well, you know, Gabor Mate says drug addicts are they figured out a way to stay alive. So, and we're shaming them. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I, I think of that and Dr. Gabor Mate's work, I think of my brother. He died of drug addiction. I have another brother who died of suicide, uh, from suicide, from major depression. And my brother who died of drug addiction was incredibly talented. He was a musician. He he built handmade guitars for some of Canada's top rock bands. He was a guitarist himself, uh, antique collector, creative, gentle soul who suddenly yeah. fell into the trap of drugs. And he didn't touch drugs. From When I was growing up, I never saw him touch drugs. He had a few beers. And it wasn't until I was a bit older that he got into the drugs. And then it just went all downhill. And he ended up losing his life from it. And it's, you know, when you, I, I kind of still think about that. And I try to come to grips with that. Um, I have no control over what happened, you know, and and that's the reality of people who fall into addictions is that it's beyond control. But that's what you're describing is it's it's not the addiction, it's the trauma. And what Gabor says is it's not why people are so fucked up. It's why the pain. Right. And, exactly. and understanding the pain. Yeah, go ahead trauma in your household yeah yeah there was there was uh, my mother was an alcoholic my father was an alcoholic um my dad was a quiet alcoholic so he just sat in the chair and just had his drinks and watched tv um my mom was very violent and aggressive and mood disorders um mm. so for for me my escape during that time i was the youngest in the family and I just sought escape through being outdoors and through sport and being physically active. And there was a separation of about six years between my older brothers and myself. So I had a little bit of leeway there, you know, where I was just unnoticed and I could hide. And in hiding, I created uh, a life for myself through things that I was passionate about because nobody noticed where I was. Whereas my older brothers, and sister really suffered the consequences of the violent behavior and and the you know the put downs and all of that right so yeah have you done the ace test do you know where you are on that no no what, what is can you okay my, and ACE my wife test. is just telling me something about it but yeah okay. tell, tell me you got a six out of ten. Oh, i got a six out of ten my wife, okay. I did do it, yes. Yeah, so my wife said I got a six out of ten. <laughs> I, I asked her. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just tell so the listeners can yeah. know the yeah. ACE test is the adverse childhood experiences test. And I have a seven on the on the and the ACE test. Mm -hmm. And so from some of the statistics that I know about, um, they say like 65% of Americans have one or more ACEs. And then um 17% have four or more ACEs. So when you start having four or more ACEs, some really bad health outcomes are, have been ascribed to that, including, you know, heart, heart, lungs, um, and heart, lungs, all those, you know, cancer, all uh, diabetes, you know, all the comorbid 
wait, can you hold on? Someone just keeps texting no, me. No problem. No problem. And I'm going to ask her to stop texting uh, me. I can, I can cut this part out. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> can you just, you said the ACE test. So I, my wife is sitting taking notes, Neela, who you met when, before we had record. And then she reminded me that I took that test. So I do remember taking it now. Um, but can you, uh, what's the name again? ACE, uh, ACE as in AC. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay. So people can find that online. Absolutely. Okay, this, is, this is what I want to know. I want everyone to know what their ACE score is Excellent. in the world. So talk more about that. Okay. So back to it. Um, so an ACE test, the ACE test was developed by um, Robert Ananda and Vincent Valletti in 1998. They were, were working with Kaiser and they noticed, they noticed that um, a lot of health and adverse Health, health effects, obesity, heart disease, lung disease came from childhood trauma. Um, and what, what I know statistically is that uh, 65% of Americans have suffered at least one ACE, but I believe probably it's more closer to 90%. That's my sense. Um, and 17% of Americans have suffered four or more ACEs. When you have four or more ACEs, the, your longevity... Um, goes down 20 years Holy shit. Um, unaddressed i'm saying unaddressed yeah, yeah. so my mother and father my mother and father my father died at 61 my mother died at 69 wow um so that's that's just one health outcome that comes from aces and um what i've i've been doing surveys in prison i'm just starting to gather more information but of the 300 men that i've surveyed 70% have four or more aces, seven zero, not 17, like an American, like the general population. Yeah. And so we're, and so you have, you know, you have mental illness, um, drug, drug or alcohol addiction. You had either emotional and physical abuse. I'm not sure. Um, and, but you, and you were also abandoned, which is not one of the aces, but it's when your father was that, you know, impaired, he abandoned you emotionally. So it's yeah. emotional neglect, actually. That's what we would call that. Yeah. Yeah. I clearly remember when I am just honest here, I clearly remember like I loved my dad and he he had a violent streak, but only to discipline. Besides that, he kind of had a quiet, loving nature about himself. But I do distinctly remember when my mother was being really mean and abuse, physically abusive and yelling and screaming and creating this uncertainty in the household. Uh, I remember thinking to myself, I don't remember how young I was, but why isn't he protecting us? Why isn't he stepping up and stopping this? And, yeah. and it was, I remember grappling with that and never questioning him, of course. My parents got divorced when I was 16 and then they ended up parting ways for 16 years and not talking until my brother died uh, of a drug addiction. He had an aneurysm and then they became friends again. But I think it's that whole idea of, of childhood trauma again. And it's not so much people thinking, oh, it's just genetics, but it's so much more than that. And if we were to segue into the Compassion Prison Project, and everything that you're doing, um, 
can you just talk more deeply now about the project? And more importantly, before you get into what the project is, what was the spark or inspiration that really pushed you to create this endeavor? Uh, well, the spark was visiting a prison and and meeting a hundred magnificent men with smiles and hearts and ideas and um, agency. And and then I asked when you know I, I went to it's called Hustle 2.0. I went in. It's another program where this woman teaches men how to be entrepreneurs and um, you know how to love themselves it's a great program and I was like well when are we coming back and she said in six months and that didn't seem like like I needed to I needed access sooner than that so but what I also what I noticed that day was that they were just traumatized it wasn't that they were bad people I, I had a thought in my head that they were bad people they weren't bad people there are no bad people they're just traumatized people I mean I believe I mean maybe there are some people that need to stay in prison because they're so abused or so deranged or or if you look at their brain scans, they have, you know, really bad brains. But I don't think, honestly, anybody is bad, is inherently bad. And that was confirmed when I went into a maximum security prison that day and I felt safe and loved and surrounded by beautiful people not prisoners, people. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely, I was like, this is ridiculous what we're doing. And so I don't, I didn't know how to change the system, but I knew I had to change myself first. And, and I knew that what was going on in there, I was responsible for because I voted for those people or, you know, I haven't, so I'm responsible. That's the thing. That's the thing about no shame. Yeah. There is no shame, but accountability, like we're in this mess. Okay. There's no shame for where, what we did in the past, but now we know better. Now we have to shift this and we have to shift it fast because these men are, are these men and women are, um, they're just, we're wasting our resources and we're wasting these lives for what, 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 because we're better than them because they're monsters. Well, no, now we know they're not, we know this. And um, we need to look at our own trauma and heal our own trauma and work with the men and women and heal their trauma. So um, this is just facts now that I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, what the Bible has said, spare the rod and, and spoil the child is, is, you know, heresy. I guess that's not the right word. Yeah. It's, it's ruined our society. That phrase has ruined our society. I mean, you bring violence into the household, that's where, that's, those are the roots of violence in our society. Yeah. We expect violence, you know, that's, that's, we attract violence. You know, you go into those crime infested areas, they're violent in their household, they're violent in the streets, policemen come, they've been abused or they have PTSD. So they're, they're violent, they're attracted to that violence. It's all it's a circle and the same circle can be broken with love. Yeah. So you, you, you just bring love into a situation and things shift. I mean, and it, 
the guys, my guys, my 30 guys that I've been working with for over a year, you know, two of them were drug addicts. Um, one of them had a DNR, like a do not resuscitate on his medical file. And he took it off because he wanted to live again. His mother had tried to slit his throat. So these are just a couple of the results that, that my program has, has given, but it's, I think many, many programs are doing, having the same effect. Um, but the, I think the key here is, is childhood trauma, understanding, even extreme poverty. Some of the guys only have two on the ACE test, but if you ask them if you lived in extreme poverty, they'll all say yes. And that has the same effect on your brain as trauma. It is trauma basically, but it, what happens is, um, glucocorticoids, I don't, I'm not a scientist, but cortisol runs through your brain and you're in a flight or fight situation. And when you're in fight or flight, your prefrontal cortex shuts down, your amygdala gets bitter, bigger, and you're ready to, to take on whatever, whatever's going on. But you're not thinking, you're not, your executive brain is off. He's, he's gone away. Yeah. So it's just like, and, and that's when you go into those blind rages. You don't even know who that is, but that is that is your body taking over and killing that bear or killing whatever that is to be, be safe. You know, simple. We've forgiven the vets, we've forgiven the 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 cops. Now let's look what we're look at. I mean, how many women in prison have been have have been uh, um, sentenced to life for killing their their perpetrators or the, the people that have victimized them. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous what we've, you know, what justice, what they say justice is, you know, Cornel West, my favorite quote is justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. So, you know, and when, when you, when you think about the work that you're doing now, and in particular the Compassion Trauma Circle, on February 12, 2020, you were, you know, you were in the maximum security prison that was in California, correct? Yes. Yeah. And when I came across that video, I watched it and I was like so incredibly moved. My boys have both watched it. Uh, my wife has watched it. We've watched it a few times. And you you do this circle of, of trauma, a, a compassion trauma circle. And just share with the listeners, because obviously, like, those who haven't seen it will see it. But just, just share what that experience was like and the purpose of the compassion trauma circle for people uh, listening right now. Um, well, we developed the Compassion Trauma Circle at Kern Valley with my 30 guys. So where we filmed was at Lancaster, um, and but where I did most of my work was at Kern Valley State Prison. Another, they're both maximum security prisons. So when I was doing this trauma trauma work with the men, I I needed a physical way so that they could all see that they'd all what they'd all experienced. That this was not this was not uh, like a you know, just a, a glint. This was, this was deep in their lives. This was deep in all, this was embedded in all of their lives and everyone in prison. And I just was like, how are we going to physicalize this? Cause I'd done this step inside the step to the line. There's a, yeah. 
the step to the line exercise, which was great. And it, it was, it's also kind of a trauma exercise, but it didn't, what it didn't do is show it how, how it like deep, deep in this, in the system and in these lives it was. So we just started, I used the ACE test and I also added my own questions, um, like homelessness, foster care, seeing dead bodies, all these things that when vets are on the field, like a vet sees a dead body, his body goes into his body. You know, it's a shock. It is a trauma for him Mm -hmm. to see a dead body, to see someone blown up. I mean, a lot of these guys, you know, they come home to their father blowing their brains out or they see people playing Russian roulette or they see their friend, their best friend get shot. So all of these things are, this is, these are events of war that these men have, men and women have experienced. Um, There's just war in our streets. You know, the war on drugs, that's a war. There is a war going on. So we need to, first of all, change the language. There's no more war. There is, there is community engagement to bring wholeness to our society. Mm-hmm. That's a much more empowering, empowering mm-hmm. phrase than the war on drugs. So, you know, we have to all watch our words in, a, in addition to watching our minds, our minds and the words we put out into the world because that, those are, that's the magic that we have. We create our realities with our thoughts and our words. So, um, you know, that's just one of the things I talk to the guys about every class is what are, what intention are you putting into the world? Completely forgot what we were talking about. No, we, we, were, we were talking about that compassion trauma circle and, and creating those driving questions to allow people. So if people see the video and those that have, those that have seen the video or those who will watch it, will see this, you know, group of, I think there was 235 men and yeah. you can see what's very interesting is you can see the risk takers that are willing to just bear their soul that step in, step in, step in. And then you see the other other ones on outside the circle who, for whatever reason, don't have the courage to step in. Maybe that's the vulnerability piece, whatever. That's what I found very interesting. But then in the inter not the interview, but the smaller circle that you did in the Compassion Prison Project video that went out was um, that man who genuinely admitted that he hadn't stepped inside, but then he felt he let his brothers down and he wasn't true to himself. And then he took those steps. Right. And it's such a beautiful metaphor for for life, you know, and connection and belonging and significance. Um, so just speak to that real genuine sense of belonging and significance and connection that you create, that you strive to create through some of those activities that truly liberate them. Yeah. And I just want to say some people really didn't experience some of those, those, um, those events. And that's, that's, uh, I noticed in my classes, you know, why are some people, seemingly having a good childhood but then the question that isn't asked is did you live in extreme poverty so once that if that question is there and those guys move in that's just enough that's enough to catapult you into so even if they took two steps if they live in extreme poverty or were homeless or you know whatever it is 
just one of those events is enough yeah. to to change your brain and change how you respond to the world. You know, violence, which poverty is an act of violence when we live in such abundant society. If we are not taking care of each other, we're not taking care of ourselves. So it's an act of violence to ourselves by not taking care of the most impoverished people in our society. So um, just to speak to that, some people actually are just being honest and didn't have all those yeah. adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. Um, but what happened in the group when we did the first circle and people realized that their traumas were shared because in this society, you don't talk about pain. You don't talk about your adversity as children. You don't talk about, it's like man up, you know, it's very toxic. This, this toxic, this masculine, this push to be a man and to, you know, not be vulnerable. But when everyone saw that, that this trauma, like, the trauma had really informed their lives. And once they learned, had informed their lives and had created a system of violence in themselves, and once they learned of the symptoms of trauma, which is the next piece, we're going to be, we're cutting this right now, we're, we're doing the symptoms of trauma, which is, um, you know, hypervigilance. When you go to school and you're hypervigilant, you're not learning. You're worried about someone hitting you, someone coming up behind you and smacking you on the head because that's what happens at home. Um, or it happens in streets, someone throws something at your head. So you're not learning. So all these kids that are in special needs who get made such deep fun of because they're, it's not that they're not intelligent, magnificent. They can't learn because they're worried about being safe. And, you know, the only way we can start healing from trauma is if we, we're starting to feel safe, that our our sympathetic nerve system can relax and we can start feeling like, you know, the world isn't against us. And so you put people in prison where they're trained, like the, all the CEOs are trained, like in, they're in the military, where everyone is the other and must be controlled, dominated, and, you know, they're in custody. They are in the custody of the state. I mean, it is very, um, a system of domination. Yeah. So these men and women are trauma, heavily traumatized, and they still do not have the luxury of feeling safe yet. So this is, this is what's going on. Um, and, you know, it's just like the it's like the atrocities I've heard of, of my poor my poor friends that live inside there, you know, just watching people getting beaten up or you know, and all of the kind of they call RVRs rule violations that they're given to extend their sentences and to go into their files so that when they get to the parole, the chances of them getting out are are just impossible. Like it's it's like. It's like some bad hamster wheel these these people are on and that we've agreed to. We've, you know, it's in our laws, it's in our rules, it's in, you know, and, you know, this, we need to stop it now because we're, it's actually harming our own psychic, the psychic society. We're all victims of what we're doing to the homeless, to the incarcerated, to our drug addicts, you know, and 
whenever we create an other out there, whenever there's somebody that we judge or, um, or demean, we're doing that to ourselves. So it's, there's, um, there's no difference between what we do to other people and what we do to ourselves, you know, when they say this is hurting me, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you. They're actually true. It's actually true. Yeah. And when you, what are some of the things, the trauma step inside is just one kind of thing to bring people together Uh, on your website. You have trauma art, you have, which is beautiful, right? There's a great picture of, of people sitting around on the floor doing artwork together and and the arts are so powerful you know physical activity the arts music everything those things are so healing to the soul but can you talk about some of the initiatives within your project that people don't see as much um that that you're you're working on and that you might need support with and what people can do to you know, obviously donate for sure. I'm putting the link in to donate to the fundraising cause, but what can people do more of to support the initiative? And what are some of the things you're doing within your uh, projects? Yes. Um, the biggest thing we're doing is called the giving back project and the giving back project is finding ways because a harm has been committed and, you know, families have been destroyed Communities have been broken up. Fear has been instilled in everyone who's witnessed the crime. So they're part of the, it's called the Giving Back Project, where the incarcerated population finds ways to give back to their community and builds a bridge for their returning. Um, it's The idea is that we are all connected and we need to, we need to repair these, these connections so that it's like rewiring our brain. We need to rewire our communities so that we can welcome, we can welcome the men and women who created harm and find ways to integrate them back into their society. So the ways we're giving back is through art. Um, I would love for them to do like a dance recital um, to their communities or one of the guys is writing a play um, and fundraisers just, Ways that, you know, I, I, I envisioned last night a Zoom call of everyone from Watts, all the incarcerated populate men and women from Watts, get on a call with the community, with the Watts community, and we all start seeing each other. And you know how Zoom is, they're just like a grid of faces, yeah. and they're just faces. This is who we are. This is, we're just human, you know, and what can we do? Like, what can we do to give back to our community? And you know, every man I, I've worked with, I haven't really worked with women that much yet, but every man wants to, wants to, first of all, get the youth, like, aware of what gang life really means, which is, it is a betrayal of the self, and they, the, the gang, you know, I don't want to speak too much about gangs, but it's a betrayal of the self when you join a gang. You don't know it, but you think it is, it's right. Anyway, so the idea is, to rewire our communities and then create a way for a, a man to return to society where he is welcome, where he isn't a pariah, where he isn't a felon, where he will give back. I mean, so many men that I've been witnessing and women who are at, 
a way out, out of prison have been giving back a hundredfold. They're, that's all they want to do is find ways. So, um, you know, some people are heavily traumatized. They need help before they come back, but they don't need to be shut in their cells for 23 hours a day. Yeah. You know, they, they need to be out. They need to be in community and in circles and talking about their, their past and figuring out ways to be, to be creative and active and, and joyful and, you know, integrated. That's, but that's what we want for everyone. The thing is, because we're not giving that to the men and women in prison, we're not giving that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are not giving the full expression of who we are to the world. We're all being held back because of what's lying in prison. We are holding ourselves back and what's on the streets, the homeless, we're all holding ourselves back by allowing poverty. You know, we're holding ourselves back. So, you know, when I see a homeless person, I tell them and I remind them, there is no shame being homeless. You're just homeless. That's all that happened, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and a bunch of trauma, but there's no shame in having being homeless. And there's no shame being a drug addict. And there's no shame being a prisoner. There's no shame, you know, getting old. Like, let's just give each other a break. You know, it's like, there's no shame. Sometimes I look really red on camera. There's no shame, you know, whatever. I'm just who I am. How, what else do you want from me? You know? And I love that. And you know, when I, when I think of what you're saying is you had this very beautiful moving, uh, it, it was a quote from the, the video um, that I really feel represents everything that you're saying. And it's not just applicable to people who are incarcerated, but every, everybody. And your true spirit, uh, your true spirits are not violent. Your true spirits are magnificent. And that speaks yeah. to every single person on earth that their true spirits within themselves are genuinely magnificent. And how can we bring that out? And it's not about doing, doing, doing. It's about being, returning back to that being piece. And yes. what have you, you know, I, I asked you what you've kind of learned about yourself, but I guess really what is the, what is the big thing that you have learned about yourself through the past couple of years of this uh, project? Um, well, I'd say one of the biggest things I've learned is um, the more you give, um, the more you give to yourself. It's, you know, stepping outside of yourself and finding ways to give to other people. It's that circle thing. And I don't know why it's so true for me and now, but the minute I... You know, I go, when whenever I walk into those those sacred prison gates, I leave there like with bucketfuls of love in my in my cells and my spirit. You know, there's no, you know, the more we love each other, the more love we're that that is available. You know, and it's which is the same with fear. The more fear, the more fear is available, but when we start recognizing the magnificence, you know, and here I'm going to say this, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, they're magnificent. You know, that's, that's, I know those are the, <laughs> those are the ones for me that I have yeah. times question, but who, why am I judging this, these men, you know, 
these men just want attention. They want to be right. I want attention. I want to be right. So until I can love that part of myself, I'm going to find an objection in the world. And, but in that division, we have a war and these are microaggressions, but these microaggressions are, are create a lot of aggression and it's psychic and it's, we all can feel it. So, you know, transformation of our society is, is, is up. It's, it's time now. And all these people need to be loved and all those things that we find objectionable outside of ourselves are the things that are, our work is to question every single thing that is objectionable out there, turn it back into ourselves and, and find out what, what's, what's in there that's holding us back because it's holding us back. Our anger towards president Trump is holding us back. Mm -hmm. And it's holding all back, all of us, we're all in this together. So, you know, and I feel like, and I may be, there's going to come a day when it all just shifts. And I don't, and I think it might be soon. It's just going to, we're going to all be like, why do we do it? What are we doing? What? And it'll just shift in a way that it's like, no, of course, no, we can't go back to the way things were. Of course not. Cause that is a, that's a system of domination and violence. We can no longer dominate each other for profit or for self-esteem, for ego, all those fear-based modalities. So, um, you know, I hope the virus leaves the lesson it came here to teach us. Yeah, and that's been the amazing thing with through this whole, like I'm speaking to you from Saudi Arabia in the middle of the desert in a compound. We can't leave. We're totally safe here. We... Um, we wouldn't even consider leaving. We were offered the chance to repatriate to Canada to throughout, you know, to get through this time, but we are staying here and, you know, people are in lockdown all around the world. And it's such a tremendous moment to um, really develop that, what you're talking about and what the world needs. And people are connecting right now, even though it's not face to face virtually, they're connecting and they're they're really learning a lot about themselves, their families. I was listening to, a, I think, Brene Brown, her podcast, where she said, oh, definitely after after COVID, there's going to be more divorces. There's going to be more reconciliations. There's going to be more love. There's going to be more mending and healing and connection um, and choosing to believe that more good will prevail than bad from this experience. And the timing of your project and getting your project out into the world is really important. And I'm sure that you've heard from people all around the world about the impact that that video has had. Um, can can you, just before we segue into the, the closing of the show, can you talk about some of the the impact, some of the impact that the the video has had and people reaching out to you and what that has meant to you? Is, it has been a tsunami um, of support and offers to help. How can I help? How can I help? Um, so I'm going to answer that. You can share the video again. Yeah. Share it again. You know, like in your feed, only 12 people see your feed. So 
there are people that haven't seen this video and yeah. my, my, the only thing, if, if nothing else comes out of this video, but I want people to know what ACEs means, adverse childhood experience. I want people to know about childhood trauma and its prevalence and that it's deep, deep in our, um, it's in our constitution. It's in our Bibles. It's in, um, it's, it's in our religions and it's in our deep in our, in our history and in our psychic ancestral, um, you know, imprinting it's in us. And until we really look at it, we're not going to heal. And I think we need to do a global healing of our traumas and our abuse to each other and no shame. That's the thing. Cause if, I'm going to say it a thousand times because if you shame the past, you're, you get stuck. You get stuck in, 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 cause you, you, then you want to be right. You want to be, you want to be right. The ego wants to be right and it won't let go of the shame. So no shame for what we did. Now we know better. Let's create a new world. Yeah. And that's what's available to us now today. Yeah, it really is. And where can people find you, Fritzy? So I know it's not going to be hard, but just for the sake of the listeners, uh, what can what can they look up to find the work that you're doing? Our website, CompassionPrisonProject.org. Um, there's all kinds of ways to reach out to us. Right now we're about 300 emails behind. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing about me is I really want to read them all. So... Mm-hmm. You know, like one person just wrote, she wants to create a letter writing campaign, a love letter writing campaign to all the incarcerated people. Like what an amazing initiative. But so if I hadn't read that, you know, so I'm trying to read all of them and I'm way backed up because, you know, I'm, this is, this is like a dream come true of just support and recognition about something that nobody's been talking about, but we all know has been it's been simmering for years and years. And I, I guess this is the moment. This is the moment we all get to like make a new choice in how we treat ourselves, treat our children, you know, treat each other. That's like, that's, you know, and I'm glad I'm part of this. It's just exciting, exciting that people are, are seeing, seeing what's going on. I'm getting talked to like a childhood abuse prevention uh, Zoom call. I'm so excited. Like, People want me to talk about it. I, I don't know what it is that I have, but whatever, that's fine. I'll, I'll just do my thing. <laughs> you, just, you know what? Beauty comes from speaking your truth, and that's what you're doing, and that's what makes all the difference in the world. And I know you will continue to speak your truth every single day. And, you know, Albert Bandura, a very famous psychologist, talks about self-actualization actually being rooted in um, working towards serving a purpose greater than ourselves. And that when we can genuinely connect to that, we have self-actualized. And self-actualization is a process, of course. We're never actually going to get there. But the first step is speaking your truth and aligning your thoughts, words, and actions. And that's what you're now living through your beautiful life and your stories and your journey and that's what you're living, and that's what the world needs. The world needs you and everything you're doing. So I really genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for everything you're doing. Um, and I'll put everything uh, in the show notes where people can 
can find you. And I really hope teachers listening to this, wherever they are in the world, um, share your story. Yes, thank you. And, you know, get the ACE test out to everyone. Everyone take an ACE test. You know, we're not, we don't even know we've had adversity and we don't know what adversity is, childhood adversity has done to our spirits, our bodies and our brains. So, you know, it's re- it was a revelation for me to know that some of my wacky behavior was not my fault. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a gift I want to give everyone that, that they are divine. They are magical. Yeah, and magnificent, as you said. Um, so, Fritzy, just stay on the line. Neela? Um, my, my wife, you know, she runs a virtual yoga class um, and she does a lot of work with mindfulness and uh, I just asked her if she could do something special at the end for you and the people wow. that you serve um, to close off the show and then just stay on the line when we close off. And I just want to just connect for a couple minutes. So go ahead. So Fritzy, it's been an honor and a pleasure to listen in the background while this whole podcast was being created. Um, I just want to practice some loving kindness to you and all the people who surround you and um all the communities without borders, may you be free from internal and external harm. May you, you may you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy and vital. And may you experience love in all its forms, joy and wisdom in this world as it is. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So uh, we're going to close off with that. Everybody, um, can you pronounce your last name? I don't want to get it wrong. Horstman. Horstman. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Fritzy Horstman. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Bye.